You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by your host, Mike King, and produced in partnership with Demurco Express Group, a global 3PL that specializes in managing logistics to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King, and this is the Freight Buyers Club. And this is our second episode. Before we get started, quick bit of housekeeping. We're available wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll also find all episodes ready to play at thefreightbuyersclub.com, where you can also subscribe to receive each episode direct to your inbox. And uh, let me also say big thanks to Demeco Express Group as trailed. They really do connect Asia to the world better than anyone else. And their support has also made this podcast possible. My guest today is someone who's been on all sides of the freight business, shall we say. Until very recently, he was one of container shipping's best analysts as VP Advisory Services for Global Supply Chain at Sea Intelligence Advisory Services. He's also been a vessel scheduling manager, a salesperson, a freight forwarder, and a 3PL. On the other side of the fence, he was Global Head of Logistics, Electrolux for 16 years, during which time his team and he moved millions of TUs and hundreds of thousands of tons of air freight. He this year embarked on the next stage of his remarkable career as Executive Director, International Transport as American Multinational Cummins, which manufactures and designs a whole range of heavy equipment, including engines and generators, and is also on the cutting edge of alternative fuel systems. I'm delighted to welcome to the Freight Buyers Club, Bjorn Vang Jensen. Hello, Bjorn. Hi, always good to be here. Thanks for joining me, Bjorn. We heard previously on this podcast in episode one from the Wall Street Journal's Paul Page and the National Retail Federation's John Gold about how U.S. businesses are looking at this post-COVID world and where they'll be sourcing product from, whether they'll be staying in China or diversifying. Now, one U.S. importer I was speaking to said they're moving from sourcing from around 10 countries now with China the largest to sourcing from around three dozen countries with China playing a much smaller part. They're making a lot of these changes in the next two years, so it's happening quite quickly for that particular manufacturer. What's your take on this? Are these trends that are gathering steam in your view? Normally I'm quite cynical about that question, Mike, because I've heard about nearshoring, reshoring, French shoring, right shoring, and everything shoring for a decade at the very least. And, and only I'll say, listen, China is China and very difficult to beat. If China wants to play, they will play and they will be untouchable. However, the pandemic, and especially China's own COVID policies after the pandemic, after the rest of the world returned to normalcy, let's be clear, the pandemic is not over. We're still in the middle of one. It's just a slightly less deadly one than we were in. But after the rest of the world returned to normalcy, China obviously didn't. And they were implementing draconian measures that made no sense to outsider servers. Clearly, they pulled back from that as well now. But it has given people a lot of cause to reflect on what might happen if China decided to revert to a zero COVID policy or a different COVID policy, stricter one than they currently have. 
because it has had a massive impact on global supply chains. And I think people are done with having massive issues in global supply chains. So if they can eliminate at least some risk, they will do so. And we see that, don't we? I mean, you don't need me to tell you that Vietnam has enjoyed a surge in business, that the infrastructure in Vietnam, as it pertains to especially container shipping, has seen and will continue to see massive upgrades and new schedules, deep sea vessel calls, etc. So Vietnam is a beneficiary and China has now all of a sudden finds itself in a position of having something to prove, which is that they can do other things than just making cheap stuff or making stuff cheaply, depending on which way you look at it. Because apparently other countries can as well. And no doubt countries like Thailand, Vietnam, and others have stepped into to the vacuum that China left. And I don't know that China can completely pull back from that, but deliberately use the word completely because writing China off as a global player is just silly, absolutely silly. They are back, they have changed their policies. They understand now, I believe that this was detrimental to China's reputation as the factory of the world. So whilst I do now agree that some nearshoring, reshoring, French shoring, right shoring is taking place. I do not believe that this will pull the rug from under China and China's place in the world economy. So how does this play out for shipping lines? Let's say China continues to play a major part, as it must do, irrespective of maybe, let's call it heightened government risk. But China still continues playing this huge part in global trade and shipping patterns. But we do have these more varied, diverse supply chains. How does this impact port rotation strategies and shipping lines? And, and maybe more pertinently, we've seen the breakup of the 2M already, and there's prediction to further changes in liner alliances. Does all of these things, do they make it meeting these changing shipping needs more difficult for the individual carriers? Or maybe you're expecting an alliance rejig. I mean, I'll leave that, that one with you, Bjorn. Wow, that's an awful lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, it was. Let's try and unpack it and start with the challenges in terms of the pop rotations and the considerations that carriers will obviously have to, to make in the face of all this reshoring that is taking place. Clearly, Vietnam, again, is on everybody's map right now in terms of adding more deep sea calls, direct calls. Thailand, possibly as well. Uh, Singapore will benefit to a certain extent as a transshipment port. But by and large, already now, these ports are well served. Will that change with whatever changes happen to the alliances? No, it will not. 2M was, you know, the world's worst kept secret that it was going to break up at some point. I think it makes a ton of sense for both carriers, honestly. But my inbox and WhatsApp and text messages flowed over that day, that day when 2M announced that they were breaking up the 25. Have you seen the news? Have you seen the news? I'm like, I've seen it, but how is it news? <laughs> this, this is not really, you know, unanticipated in any way. Most other carriers I know are basically shrugged it off and it's always about to happen, wasn't it? It's two totally different strategies. Again, even you and see God from Merskless in, in Chiffy Watch saying, you know, understand that 2M made perfect sense in 2015, given the situation carriers were facing then. It's an alliance that served its purpose. But now that its two members are having completely opposing strategies, 
uh, with one wanting to be an end to end logistics service provider who therefore clearly wants to have full control of his network, doesn't want to have to go to MSC for permission to omit a port or add another port or change rotation to a service. They want to have that control. And MSC going the other way is saying, well, we want to be an enormous carrier and, and we do that by adding uh, tons and tons of vessels and we can stand our own. Perfect sense. Everybody's then saying, well, that's the first domino to fall or that's, you know, that's going to just precipitate a huge shift in alliances. Maybe it does. And so what? Alliances have shifted members and names three or four times in the last, whatever, 15 years. Alliances will not go away. Few carriers other than Mars Kennedy actually have the wherewithal from a capacity standpoint and a strategic standpoint to go with it all. So alliances will be there. Why? Because the economics of alliances is, is sound. That the notion of not having to deploy a small armada when you can actually, alone, when you can deploy a small armada together and keep the vessels as full as possible, makes all the sense in the world. I've never understood those shippers who feel like alliances are evil and market manipulating and all the other nonsense. And I really believe this absolute nonsense. If people really want to see trouble in the global supply chain, by all means, get rid of the alliances. And by the way, your rates are going to go north swiftly as well for obvious economic reasons. So I don't know that this shift nearshoring or whatever will make a big change, neither to alliances nor to the current port coverage. It might mean that the redeployment of larger vessels into some ports like Vietnam, and they are clearly seeking with expansion projects, et cetera, to have that capability. Indonesia also coming up with the new port south of Jakarta could be an interesting deep sea call direct. But these are not seismic shifts in the carrier landscape or the service landscape. They're evolutionary shifts. And I, I don't know why people are reading their hands so much over it. It'll be what it'll be, but it won't be much different from what it is today. As you say, it wasn't a very well-kept secret that this divorce might be coming. It's not happening immediately anyway, at least in terms of how people will receive those services from 2M. But where do you think maybe those two carriers go now in terms of direction? There has been people saying Maersk will find another alliance, although that seems relatively unlikely. But both carriers have got these big pots of gold from the COVID years. Do you think this is now where we see where they're going on their divergent ways? This is going to become more apparent to us. Yeah, this I do believe. We've got a couple of, of big changes that could happen. They're not sorry to speak again, but they'd be. Clearly, we know where Maersk is going or where they intend to go anyway. Right. We want to be into end full control of our network. They've invested a ton of money in trucking companies and customs clearance companies, logistics companies, an airline, which is functioning quite well, a cargo airline. That's the direction they want to go in. Will that work for them? I don't know. We'll find out now. Now it's actually the year when we're going to find out whether it works, right? Because that integrated logistics service that most started, got kickstarted a couple of years ago, has been an easy sell to a lot of customers. Well, an easy sell, or in some cases, it's been a hard sell in the sense that most has, has basically said, if you don't buy supply chain services, then we will curtail the space we will give you in our vessels, right? All the space you want, if you don't want to buy supply chain services, we might find some space for you. That strategy has worked in a massively seller-oriented market, as we've seen in the last two years. 
Now is the time when, when it will be tested, when customers no longer have a gun to their head and, and can choose. Most strategy will work if and only if the product itself is actually great and reasonably priced. Okay. And now Merck is, is no longer able to fall back on, well, we control the space anyway. There's space everywhere, everywhere, right? So given now a choice, customers will vote for quality and price. And I hope that that product can stand alone for Merck. We'll find out. MSC clearly going to be, it's all about volumes and flexibility and we have our own network and we certainly can have the ships to build just like any network we want of varying sizes. I'm much more interested in following the third and fourth largest carriers, uh, CMA and Costco, of course, because as I understand it from people I talk to, there was never any love lost between those two. They did not find a way to really get along. So that will be, I think, the next alliance to go. At which direction CMA will then go in, I don't know. Costco is now investing in logistics services, primarily in China, upgrading that. CMA has, of course, started an airline, which they apparently were struggling to fill, so they've now charted out the plans to it's a different provider. But okay, that doesn't mean they've gone away. The smaller ones will focus on shipping. Yes, they have lots of money, but they're also seeing lean years ahead, and rightly so. They have a war chest, and the question is, will they spend that war chest on diversifying, or will they spend it on subsidizing, staying in the game? Taking losses, as they did, some of them already are, and more will come. But now, from a different position, a position of financial strength, they can take that. And what that will be interesting to watch. Who's trying to squeeze out? Who's investing more money in squeezing out the smaller players than others? Right. I think MSC will. I think CMA may have no choice but to follow. I can't forecast what Costco will do. And then you got the smaller players who, like the ONEs, I think they will revert much more to just fuel shipping or stay in just fuel shipping. And the smaller players will focus on niche markets and enable mid-sized vessels that can be deployed anywhere that anywhere there's a little bit of money to be made. Just thinking back to those previous cycles, because you just made a very good point there, that the carriers, they've got that much money in that part, they're fully equipped to ride out the next downturn in this cycle, even as all these yeah. new ships yeah. come in. How does that compare historically maybe would be interesting for listeners, but does that change the relationship I want to ask you about next, which is between the shippers and carriers and how it's been affected over the last few years? That relationship or lack thereof or destruction of uh, that has undoubtedly taken place in the last two and a half years is real. The, The destruction is real. We can play that ping pong game for hours and hours. Yes, you did. Yeah, but in the past you did. Yeah, okay. But before that, you did this. It is fruitless. I think it's a very good thing as a BCO. I obviously think it's a good thing that the market shifted as rapidly as it did. And at the time it did. Normally you would have expected it to shift sort of round about now because tenders are out and the, the downturn and that it shifted three months, started three to four months early, I think is good because all that bad blood and all the payback and you know, all that nastiness has been dealt with. 
right? It was dealt with in September, or well, you know, October, November, December. We, we've got men out of our systems at BCOs, right? And now people are focusing on tender negotiations, which are obviously going to conclude at a much, much, much lower level than we've seen in the past two and a half or three years. But now we've had the fight, right? We've cleared the decks and people can be a little bit more constructive in the team negotiations that are happening now. But yeah, rates will be depressed for a long time, no doubt about it. But the shipper carrier relationship, mostly at least in the negotiating table, the air has been cleared and we're starting from scratch. The kind of scratch that as a BCO, I very much like. But I think there's also an understanding when they really look themselves in the mirror, certainly on my part, among shippers, that it is no one's interest that carries and lose money. In that respect, however, carriers and forwarders are, as always, their own worst enemies. Capacity control discipline is woeful. It's back to a doggy dog scenario that we've seen before. The closest analogy I can think of, like is 2009, 2010. Financial crisis and what happened, right? 2008 rates started sliding, 2009, they, they lunged. I mean, I can recall literally paying $50 a high cube from Shanghai to Santos, Brazil. Wow. I mean, I never asked for $50 a high cube. Somebody sends me an email saying, hey, would you like to stitch some boxes for $50 a high cube? What are we going to say? No, it doesn't really work like that, right? And we're seeing elements of that now. We're clearly not at those silly levels, but we are at levels that are approaching silly on some trades. And certainly some must be lost weight in territory. I think there'll be an adjustment there. But in any case, we all renegotiated in 2009, just as we did towards the tail end of 22, and just as we're doing now, we're renegotiating and saying rates are a completely different level. However, smart people remember that there also was a year called 2010, when there was a sharp bounce back in rates, like a really, really sharp bounce back. Clearly not to the levels we've seen in the last few years, but, you know, hundreds of percent the upwards from 2009 levels. That will happen again. And smart shippers know this, and smart shippers, in my opinion, take that into consideration and make sure, because we, you and I, and everybody else here, we move in an industry where cycles are short and memories are long. And everybody knows when was the last time they got shafted, and there's always a payback being primed somewhere in, in the system, right? So if you're smart now as a shipper, you hold back a little bit. Okay, rather being honest, the reasonable person vented his frustrations, got some rate reductions, but now we look forward, we're trying to be reasonable, but we're also not fools. You're in a perfect position here, aren't you, Bjorn? Because you've been working as a consultant, as everyone's had all these arguments, and now you're going straight in. You're the only sensible BCO in the room, aren't you? <laughs> Luck counts, Mike. Luck counts. <laughs> It's not the person who has made that observation, but it's been really, really interesting, honestly, to be on the advisor side, because it's exposed me to a ton of different industries, different clients that I work with, some radically different industries, from retail to snacks to fast moving consumer goods to automotive to heavy manufacturing, shoes, toys, and agro. And I've discovered that the supply, the international supply chain situations and concerns and problems are not in any way different. Even pharma, okay, pharma has some cold chain and things like this, small and small variations, right? But honestly, when you get down to the bottom line, which is rate negotiations and, and, and ongoing daily operations, 
going to go out on a limb and say it doesn't make a blind bit of difference whether you're making engines or washing machines or, or cornflakes. It really doesn't. It's the same issue, right? So I've learned that from, from being on the consulting side. I've also obviously had much more exposure to carriers in that I've sat in on lots of these contract negotiations on behalf of together with clients and seen how clients of varying sizes and varying uh, geographies are treated compared to what my firms was in the past with Electrolux, right? But yes, I guess I got lucky. But I didn't get lucky in the sense that I, I feel like, yes, yeah, so now I have to go in and just show everybody how many millions I can save because anyone can save millions in this market. Anyone with a phone can save millions. It's about can you do it consistently? Can you do it a little over time? And can you be that reasonable PCO that, where we can have adult conversations rather than shouting matches with carriers? That's always been my way and it will never change. This podcast is proudly produced in partnership with DeMurco Express Group, a trusted provider of global shipping and contract logistics services in Asia, Europe, and North America. DeMurco's particular strength is in Asia, where it gives shippers the freight capacity and local market expertise to streamline freight movements to and from the region, particularly for trans-Pacific lanes. With 130 forwarding and logistics locations across China, India, and Southeast Asia, DeMurco connects Asia with the world like no other global 3PL. You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club. I did speak to a big shipper, and I don't want to give out too much information because it was a private conversation, but a major shipper that has been buying a lot of freights uh, that predates the global financial crisis and knows that cycle. And they were telling me that this is different. Like during COVID, their long-term partners, they didn't answer the phone. They didn't honor their contracts. And now really these renegotiations, so spot rates have tumbled. They're renegotiating their longer-term contract rates. This isn't going to be a case of, you know, let's go and have a beer and we'll, we'll work it out. It's vengeance time. I don't think that's a terrible position to take because as an operator, you're, yes, you're tasked with saving money, but you're mostly tasked with generating or creating supply chain systems and networks and platforms that can stand the test of time. And again, we go back to, I know we're in an industry with short cycles and long memories. Just never forget, okay, that there will come a time when you're no longer in the driver's seat. Get that PTSD and that vengeance and that thirst for revenge out of the system and then move on and can revert to being reasonable. It is, it stands you in good stead. I understand the sentiment. I totally understand the sentiment that I certainly lived vicariously through my clients when I was a consultant for the last two and a half years, right? I get it, but get it out of your system as well. You can't let that piss off forever because before you know it, Somebody's going to find out that, okay, great. So you didn't answer your phone, you didn't honor your contracts, you didn't deliver what you promised, and you as a shipper was never guilty of that. Let's be honest with each other, right? Pre-COVID, somewhere between 60 and 75% of performance against the forecast was considered quite good and very acceptable by carriers. And a lot of shippers, both the ones I've worked for and the ones I've worked with, they kind of nod and, and cast their eyes down when you suggest that perhaps they've not always been brilliant at living up to their own promises, right? Where the difference is, I do think, and this I've seen with my own eyes, is in the behavior. Most shippers, with a few exceptions, and there are also some shippers who display similarly super arrogant behavior, but they are the exceptions. 
we know that we're not always good at living up to what we promised. Sometimes there are very good reasons for it. Okay, supply problems, uh, component shortages, quality issues, etc., all conspire to uh, to render forecasts uh, difficult to make. But reason and communication with your carriers, constant communication, rather and, and uh, the arrogance that carriers displayed in the last two years, the arrogance has never, to my knowledge, with a few exceptions, been present or displayed by shippers. I think that's what gets people. It's not the high rates that gets people. It's the mind-blowing arrogance that almost every single carrier displayed towards shippers as they broke their promises. That one is, that's why people find it so difficult to forgive and forget and move on. Uh, so carriers who are listening to this, take note, because you'll be faced with that in tender negotiations if you're not already being faced with it. I want to come to some advice that maybe you can give to shippers listening to this podcast on how they might go about managing those contract negotiations. But just on that service delivery that you mentioned there, now Sea Intelligence, who you've previously been working with, they do these fantastic line of reliability numbers that, that they've tracked everything for year after year. And, and during the last few years, obviously, it's gone down to historical lows, sort of below 50% line of services, even while rates were flying through the roof. Obviously, it's a different landscape now. People are competing for cargo. We've seen some marginal improvements, but from such a low base, should shippers now expect or even demand more reliability on just on that pure delivery as tracked by Sea Intelligence? They should expect it. The amount of difficulty making this sense because I want to just make sure we remind ourselves that a lot of these delays were not really ocean delays. They were not delays in terms of vessels not getting there on time. They were port delays. They were infrastructure delays, which obviously had a massive knock-on effect. I mean, we all remember, what was, that? what was the record? 136 vessels or something lying off of Long Beach. I mean, that's hardly the shipping line's fault. There's an issue with the port. There were issues with the rails. There were not enough chassis. There were not enough trucks. This is not a carrier issue, right? But it is what caused timeliness to plummet when we said when vessels are late, how late are they? That number went from whatever normal is of two normal is two days to seven, eight, nine, ten days, depending on the trade you looked at. That's falling dramatically now. I think it's now below five, if it's not four days, which is again very close to normal. What's still blocking it is the US East Coast situation. What's creating the U.S. East Coast situation is well known. It's, it's a mixture of all behaviors changed. When the RW contract came up for renewal, people shift their cargo to the East Coast. And since that contract hasn't been renewed yet, people are unknown to shift back to the West Coast. For reasons I do not understand. But, okay. Uh, They've been bent in the past, perhaps, with previous strikes or productivity declines. Perception is reality, but I sit here and wonder, what is it? It, it can only be... Uh, or another year before the East Coast Union's contract is up for renewal. So maybe people should start thinking about shifting back to the West Coast. <laughs> uh, this is not a paid announcement on behalf of the Port of Long Beach in LA, but maybe the best kept the secret right now is that shift back to the West Coast for crying out loud. They've got all this space and time in the world. You've got no issues on the West Coast. Why are you still shipping into the East Coast? I don't get it. But what I want to say is, let's revert to the whole reliability issue. 
as congestive factors in port are plummeting, congestive indexes in port are plummeting, so the waiting time is plummeting, the number of days delayed is not plummeting. Well, it is actually, because it's sort of improved by almost 50% over the last six months, right? That will almost automatically lead to better reliability, but not overnight. It will happen over the next month or two. I believe we will keep seeing that curve creep up to where it was pre-COVID, which is in the 75 to 80% range. Now, and that's comfortable range for most shippers because shippers don't sit there and stop their factories just because there's a delay. We've learned a long time ago to bake these delays into forecasts, to bake them into supply chain plans, to bake them into components and, and buffer stock and, and so on. Do we want to? No. But we've done it. It's not like factories are, have grown to all, all over the world. Yes, we will expect it and we will get it. But can we demand it? No, we cannot, because a lot of these factors are beyond the control of shipping. In terms of what a smaller shipper perhaps can demand when they're looking at contracts and tenders for shipping particularly, what can they benchmark within that contract? What, what metrics should they be using? Can they use a benchmarking platform perhaps? Do they really reflect accurately? There's such a complex and dynamic market. What advice would you have for an SME shipper? When you say benchmarking platform, are you talking about rates? Are you talking about reliability? Um, yeah, I'm talking about rates particularly, yeah. But... I mean, there are a few out there that are obviously partial to, to Shinetta, you know, and they'll, if Patrick is listening, I'll be sending my bill later. But no, I, <laughs> I am partial to Shinetta. I was one of the very first customers, the large PCOs who joined Shinetta a year after they started and pulled a lot of the larger ones in along with me. And I do claim some credit for that. Didn't get any, but I clearly I, I think there's still a, um, an advert from you on YouTube is, where I yeah, found it while yeah, I was researching yeah. this interview. There is, and I meant every word, and I think Sinesa has, has grown really to an absolutely fantastic product, which is still evolving. And one of the few, I think, maybe uh, ventures in, in ocean shipping that deserves the VC capital that's been thrown at them over the years. Now, there's a can of worms. Yeah, 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 and we shall not open it today. <laughs> <laughs> Please. No, but, okay. But, no, but, but, you know, there's always, uh, wherever there's risk, there's money looking for an opportunity. But, but Sinesa is a platform that, that in my opinion, best platform. There are others, of course, jewelry and uh, sort of the indexes are great. The problem is that in a market like this, not even Sinesa can keep up. Because a market like this is like what the stalker of the call trying to catch a falling knife. Every time you think you've got your hands on it, it either gets cut or you miss it. Right when the market plummeted this rapidly and and the numbers plummeted so far, indexes cannot keep up. You cannot today go into any index and say today's rate as a BCO. I can expect today's rate to be so and so and so. You can't. There will inevitably be a delay. You can look to some of the shipping futures, like the Freitas uh, settled uh, futures uh, schemes that are out there. For example, the FBX settled futures. That would give you a steer. So if you sort of combine the two, you'll get a better steer. With the FBX back, the futures are settled futures and internet, you'll be in a good place. You'll be in as good a place as you can be. But it also depends on your size and your requirements, right? Now we get to, the, to your original question, what can shippers demand? Contracts have morphed dramatically in the last two and a half years as well. As Carrie got into the driver's seat, they made a concerted effort and a successful one to get rid of a lot of the 
clauses that they really, really disliked over many, many years. Now they're walking them back. I've had several carriers. I'm meeting with one today who's literally not, not one of the carrier with one carrier. Today, who's already come back and said, look, we've gone through the boilerplate. You're a shipper of your BCO boilerplate. And we had lots of issues with it in the last year or so, but here are the things we're not prepared to give on. That if you were asked them six months ago, they would have been like, oh, take it or leave it. No, like, okay, all right, all right, right. You can have it back. So I think shippers who are locked into boilerplates that were signed within the last 12 to 18 months would do well to take a look at them and incorporate it into the negotiation. And then what I'm getting to is, Maybe not just focus on rates completely as a ship, but you sit down as a BCO to negotiate with carriers. What I would do and what I will do if I make that decision for myself is to say, it's not always just about saving $20 or $25 more per CU on a, on a given corridor. Maybe it's about getting that benefit somewhere else. For example, by eliminating something in the boilerplate or by adding something to the boilerplate that's actually in the long run worth a lot more to me as a shipper, also in real money terms, but is not holding the carryover barrel and squeezing that last $25 out then. That there's many, many ways to skin that cat. And my way, I believe that I've just outlined is and will be perceived as much more reasonable and workable. So that would be my advice, both to shippers and carriers. Don't just look at the rates as you said, of course you need to look at them. There's no doubt, right? But, but look at the big picture. Look at where can you offer value to a shipper that's not just squeezing $25 out of the rate. Is there something else that's more palatable for the carrier and the shipper will be happy with it? If you're an SME shipper, I mean, just on the price more here, but with this volatile market, are we looking at keep your contract short? You go, you're going long, get, get in, well, wait, you know, wait for prices to fall further. Is there any sort of general, I know it's not one size fits all, but is there any sort of general advice? It's a really good question, Mike. I mean, I've seen it and I work for a company that's not a, a large ship and by no means as large as my previous employer, but still good size. And by the way, a lot of companies right now, are their forecasts are dropping by 50% compared to what they were last year, whilst the hours are not going anywhere for the moment, perhaps up slightly. So it's a good position for us to be in, and maybe it's resetting the, the norm right now for what is a large shipper, what is a medium shipper, and what is a small shipper. If you're an SME or medium or small shipper, I think you do well to have a good mix of folder and direct carrier contracts right now. And that was not a strategy I had ever pursued, but I am pursuing it now. Part of that strategy I inherited, I can't take credit for it completely. But in a market, in a falling knife market, rather than going back to, to a carrier every month going, hey, mate, the rate has dropped by another 50, can I have it? You can, with, with a mixture of forwarders in there, achieve that by having monthly rate adjustments with the forwarder for part of the volume. And then with the carrier, you can have different rate adjustments. You can have an index contract. You can have reviews every three months. What you cannot give one, unless you are a very small shipper, in my opinion, vast majority of shippers are not geared in the back office, are not geared to renegotiating rates every two weeks or one month. It doesn't work like that. We have, again, just looking at the rate is a very myopic way of looking at a, at a company's supply chain. Understand that 
cost calculations, landed cost calculations, source, sourcing decisions, timing of sourcing, and decisions related to the timing of sourcing, all rely on a rate that's relatively predictable or two, three, four, five months, sometimes 12 into the future. And you can't keep coming back and updating the system with new rates every single day because your stakeholders in, within your own company are going to come back at you screaming, stop messing with my landed cost. I can't plan my way out of it. Find a different way. So if you have that mixture of forwarders and carriers and what the proportions are, that's, I know what they are to us, but I don't know what they are to others, right? But you should take a good look at it. It's also a way to maintain your, your good relationships with the carrier that you don't come back every month and ask them for rate adjustments to the extent you need your savings. You can still get them over here where you've got your monthly rate agreements with forwarders and with the carriers, you can keep the picture more stable. Overall, the weighted average cost of its CU is still going to benefit. So stay light on your feet, uh, be agile. You go on your feet and add forwarders to the mix. I would do that. It also gives you flexibility on the number of carriers you can use, et cetera. The tricky situations can arise. I, I should just throw in there that a forwarder Demerco Express group is supporting this podcast. A little plug for them there. But it, it's just keep mix and match, right? Yeah, okay. If you get into tricky situations, where it gets difficult, now we're getting very technical, right? Where it gets very difficult, uh, when you're with a forwarder and it's doing business with a carrier on a named account basis, and that's a carrier that you are also contracting with. So, so that's important. If you do pursue a mixed strategy, that you keep the two separate. You say, I, I have a bunch of carriers over here that I work with directly. Those carriers are no-goes for the forwarders I'm working with over here. Because otherwise it gets messy and tricky and angry and notices get put out of joint and carriers start going after the forwarders' customers and vice versa. And just creating a mess. Keep the dynamite over here and the detonators over here. There's a picture you've conjured. Uh, just let's have a look at some of those biggest shippers that we saw taking quite unusual routes during this COVID crisis. I'm, uh, I'm thinking of Coca-Cola, Lidl, Walmart. There was all sorts of people. They started investing in their own capacity, mostly chartering ships. And I think you said at the time when we were chatting about this, that this wasn't a long-term solution because it wouldn't be competitive long-term if you've, essentially, if you've chartered at a high rate and then spot rates come down, you're losing money on every single slot. Most of these companies have pulled out, but not all of them. Uh, do you think there's lessons to be learned? And do you think what happens with some of these bigger companies next, do you think? Well, the lessons to be learned is lessons to be gone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, there are huge lessons to be learned. Now, I understand and I don't understand why they did what they did. I understand the frustration. I understand the pressure, internal pressure from high up on the supply chain people. Get something done. Move this cargo. I'm done with this. We cannot run a business like this. I get it. I understand psychologically this seemed like the smart thing to do. And for some, maybe it was in the short term, provided they were clever enough to take very short term, perhaps single oils charters to clear back dog and Yes, I get it. Strategic. And, and maybe that, that will continue uh, for, for some ports, especially now that, for example, multi-purpose vessel charter rates are cheapest chips, right, compared to what they were. Just, because those are the types of vessels that most people would charter here, right? Uh, you've got some, non-named, non-forgotten, who've made slightly more long-term investments and uh, in, in, in purchasing vessels. They are going through hell at the moment. And 
I just never understood why they did it. Everyone who had followed shipping for any length of time knows that this business is as cyclical as they come. And it was a huge punt to take to go long term on this uh, on this uh, A lot of forwarders burned their fingers as well because they didn't get out in time, right? And and were forced to hand back vessels. Made tons of money on maybe ten or twenty voyages, lost tons of money on, on the next five, right? I, I just don't believe that shippers should do this stuff. I think you need to, to stay nimble, you need to understand. Uh, keep your ears to the ground. What's happening in the market? Budget properly for the for, for next year. And then when stuff like this happens in the last two and a half years, fine. If you do need for your own reasons to go in and take a very short term charter or get a forwarder to do it for you, okay, I get that. But to go in long term or even medium term on something like this was always a fool's errand, and now it's been proven right. Some of this disruption we've been discussing today, the COVID years, has impacted businesses, particularly US shippers. I think it's interesting that the importance of procurement after those huge rate increases and those increased supply chain costs, that which again comes back to those shippers making these funny decisions. But it's it really has become front and center for senior executives, for business owners, and also stock markets too. They really do understand the risk of not taking supply chain planning and investment seriously, maybe. What lessons do you think people will take or businesses will take from this pandemic and this relentless disruption? What businesses will take away from this is largely on supply chain departments and logistics people. When people say, has any good come out of this at all? But the answer they're normally looking for is yes, yes, we are now understanding each other's problems better and so on. And it's of course nonsense because we don't care, you see, we're opposed forces anyway. The good that's come out of this is finally companies have woken up at the senior level, as you say, at the top level, to the fact that apparently they have something called a supply chain and apparently it's important. And as a consequence, companies have invested in there and companies follow it and companies demand much more detailed reports from their supply chain people. And that's terrific. Long may it last, but it won't last long unless the supply chain people use their newfound fame or notoriety, depending on, on your point of view, to keep themselves in focus, right? You've got a receptive audience up at the top floor right now. And right now they like you a lot because you're saying really, so, so, but you keep that platform. It would be my advice to any supply chain person here, yes, yeah, but times in the last two and a half years, but being the supply chain person was no fun at all when you got someone to the top floor. But now, A, you have a great message to sell, but the message is A, okay, we're saving some money now compared to our budget, but the message is also, remember us, we're still in bulk, we're still here, and believe us, in a year, two years, whatever, it will turn around again, hopefully not as extremely as what we've just experienced, but it will turn, okay? And you're going to need us. You're going to need us for that. And keep your senior management updated all the time on what's going on, because now they're interested and they understand a lot of the terminology. Where you know, two years ago, you would have bored a CEO to tears in two minutes talking about port congestion in Asia. Now, yeah, she understands very well what that means. It leverage that. Make sure you you keep them updated and you keep yourself visible in the organization. Do it. Just do it. Listen to John. 
Bjorn van Jensen, Executive Director for International Transport at Cummins. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Freight Buyers Club, produced in partnership with the DeMurco Express Group. Please subscribe and follow on your platform of choice or sign up for delivery to your inbox at thefreightbuyersclub.com. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic editing of Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And finally, thank you all for listening. The next episode will be with you soon.